This is Melissa, and it is the 3rd of December, 2023. And I thank everyone who got in touch with me about my nose and the cancer on it. I really appreciate your advice and concern and so forth. And just a really quick update, I did end up having surgery, actually three procedures over the course of a very long day on Thursday, and I will have to have some reconstruction in about a week and a half, so the rest of this month is going to be taken up with surgery and healing. There were a few people who suggested caustics, you know, plant-based treatments, and of course we all want to do everything that we can to avoid doctors these days, and I have used some of those types of things successfully in the past, but this was one that uh, it was not appropriate for. And as it turned out, the cancerous tissue was quite deep, and I am told that that is all gone, so that that's the good news. So thank you again, everyone who offered support and concern. I, I really appreciate it. It means a lot to me. It's helpful psychologically and emotionally. So Henry Kissinger is dead. Dead at the ripe old age of 100. And I thought it would be appropriate to find a talk where Alan discussed Henry Kissinger. So the first thing that I did was a keyword search. Now, he may have talked about Henry Kissinger a thousand times. <laughs> But I only can do a keyword if it shows up in the, the show notes, the description. And as it, as it turns out, in all of the show notes, Henry Kissinger is mentioned 89 times over the years. What, what was interesting to me, though, was that in the period between early 2020 and the last talk that Alan did he mentioned Kissinger 17 times. So he got a lot of mention during the, the COVID period. And one of the articles that Alan linked to was from LifeSite News. And I'm just going to mention the headline and I'll link to it and you can read it. This one is from April 2020. Kissinger said, failure to establish post-COVID new world order could set the world on fire. Nothing alarmist there, you know. The famous presidential foreign policy advisor demanded a global collaborative vision and program and adherence to the principles of the liberal world order. Um, I'm just going to skip through a little bit. It tells you about who Kissinger is and some of the highlights of his career. And he said, the world will never be the same after the coronavirus and that the United States government will have to sustain the public trust. Well, I just wonder how the United States government has done on sustaining the public trust. The talk that I picked out to put up what caught my eye is a talk from July 7, 2019, so pre-COVID. 
The title is Times and Portents to Conjure Terror, Pay for Safety from War and Weather. And at the beginning of the talk, Alan said that he thought that that this talk was an addendum, a good follow-up to the talk that he had done the previous week on June 30, 2019, and that was entitled, Just a Minute, There's Many an Idea We've So Sorely Bought and Pain Foreseen with a Little Forethought. The setup of this talk, before he really winds up and gets going, is that we're, we're taught not to analyze. We're taught not to think for ourselves. The entertainment is laid on for us, and we have spend our lives on the Internet. We spend our lives being entertained, and our minds really aren't able to hold on to more serious thoughts for very long. So again, this is a good talk, and just because I, I don't, I, I, that was a bit of a beating that I took yesterday uh, at the hands of the surgeon, and I am really tired. I was so low last night that I just made a comfort food and watched a James Bond movie and then ate a chocolate bar that a dear listener had sent just for the occasion of recovering from the surgery. And she herself had gone through this exact thing a few times and knew exactly what I was in for. Uh, Thankfully, she didn't really (laughs) tell me too much about it in advance. But the chocolate was helpful. And uh, watching a silly piece of entertainment was helpful too. But we can't do that much. Is one of the things when I was listening to this talk again and then thinking about Kissinger and all that he is famous and infamous for, I had the the thought that I have had so many times now since Alan's passing, which is the shortness of time. And in the talk that he said that this was an addendum for, He started that talk off on June 30 by saying time is flying. And I really do think that it is because we are at the point in the agenda where everything is being rammed through. So much of this phase of the agenda is already here. And he talked a bit in this talk about the Chinese social credit system, but being sure to say that it it really is here for all of us no matter where we live. Several months ago, when Kissinger turned 100, I was reading some of the coverage about him, about his Nobel Peace Prize, just about his accomplishments, and I came across a piece that was written by his son, David Kissinger. I don't have it in front of me. I didn't pull it up, but I think it might have been in the New York Times, and It was written, as you might expect, a son to write something who loved his father and respected his father and perhaps was a little bit in awe of him. And this is the interesting thing, I think, about the human experience and what might skirt that which is not exactly human. But I will get back to that thought in a moment. 
because one of the things that you might have heard as they're recapping Kissinger's career that he was infamous for was his big push for the carpet bombing in Cambodia. Um, we've heard, I've heard at least several times the uh, quote from the late Anthony Bourdain, who was a chef, who just said any time he has been in Cambodia, he has just wanted to beat Henry Kissinger to death. It's widely said by a lot of historians and analysts that the devastation that still goes on in Cambodia is a direct result of policies of Henry Kissinger. The immediate aftermath of this was the Khmer Rouge and the dictator Pol Pot and the millions, some say a quarter of the population of Cambodia at the time, died. So it was a horrific period in history and the effects are with us today. Then I was reading a piece I think from The Intercept that was talking about Henry Kissinger's role asserting that Kissinger was responsible for bringing an end to peace talks that seemed to be heading in a successful direction at that time. In the few years that followed the Six-Day War, and the author of that quoted in his article that famous quote that Alan shared with us repeatedly that Kissinger said, soldiers are dumb, stupid animals to be used as pawns in foreign policy. It was an interesting piece of history that I hadn't heard before that um, the author in this Intercept article was outlining was that uh, one of the ministers of foreign affairs for the Soviets had proposed a plan whereby the state of Palestine would be dissolved and the Palestinian people would be absorbed into other Arab countries and that the Soviets would use their connections in the Arab world, its influence in the region with various Arab countries to bring this to fruition. And there seemed to be some, I wouldn't say unilateral, but there seemed to be a lot of representatives from many different countries who thought that this was a workable solution. This got me thinking, though, about who Henry Kissinger was. He had a long career, and he performed very many different functions in that career. But according to Wiki, he was an American diplomat, political scientist, geopolitical consultant, and politician who served as United States Secretary of State and National Security Advisor in the presidential administrations of Richard Nixon and Gerald Ford between 1969 and 1977. Now, one of the ideas that he was known for was real politic. This is described as a pragmatic approach to politics. It's based on circumstances rather than morals or ethical premises. 
what is, how do we get what we want, not is it right to want what we want or get what, you know, go after what we want, but how, how do we do it? So that is realpolitik. But I was primarily thinking of him as a Secretary of State, and that just got my mind wandering to recent Secretaries of State. And I'll just mention a few in recent history. There's Condoleezza Rice from the Iraq War era under George W. Bush. Now, we could say a lot about Condoleezza Rice. She's still on the go very much, you know, CFR, Aspen Institute, has her fingers in all kinds of consulting pies. There's Colin Powell. Do you remember Colin Powell? Weapons of mass destruction. He was the one who just swore that those weapons were there, right? I mean, he lied. So there's a Secretary of State. We can't forget about Hillary Clinton. We came, we saw, he died as she demonically cackled over the end of Gaddafi, quite rightly described as the murder of Gaddafi. So that's secretaries of state. Now, what is going on right now? Just a few things really quickly because I don't have time to edit this and I'm just going to put Alan's talk up in full, so I want my comments to be brief. So the truce is over. Israel and Hamas are back at it. And Antony Blinken who is the current Secretary of State, and I've mentioned him several times, CFR, Aspen Institute, blah, blah, blah. That's Mr. Blinken. He's been over in the Middle East. I'm not sure if he's been there continuously since the beginning of this war, but he's been there a lot, and he is still there. And one of the reasons why he is currently there is because... Right now, starting November 30 and running to December 12, is the UN Climate Change Conference, COP28. Now, let's just go back to the title of this talk by Alan Watt. Times and portents to conjure terror, pay for safety from war and weather. So we've got... Israel and Hamas, and I think right now the Palestinian body count, which is called mostly civilians, mostly women and children, is over 15,000 dead. But they need to take some time, two weeks as it turns out, to have a big party in Dubai to advance U.S. goals in the climate change arena and ensure a strong outcome at the 2023 UN Climate Change Conference, COP28. I'm reading this. This is from a U.S. government website, a media notice. It's PR, and they're telling you who all is going to be there. The U.S. delegation will be led by Special Presidential Envoy for Climate, 
John Kerry. In addition to Vice President Kamala Harris, who will attend COP28 from December 1 and 2, other senior U.S. officials in the U.S. delegation include. Now, I'm just going to name a couple and point out who they are. There's a list of a couple dozen maybe there, but there's Antony Blinken, Secretary of State. So he has time and all his hand-wringing, oh dear, oh dear, you know, this is a complicated thing for Israel. And oh, he had to stop and make a comment today or yesterday because of a New York Times piece that came out saying that Israel actually had the plans that Hamas had made for this attack for more than a month prior. They knew in detail what was going to happen and how it was going to happen, but it was dismissed. I'll put the link up. You you know, pay, New York Times is behind a paywall, but for anybody who wants to take a look at it, you can probably find snippets of the article, which I'm sure has been quoted by other publications by this point. But to me, this is... How, how would you describe it? I said immediately. I said immediately. It did not happen like that. There is no way. There's just simply no way that an attack of that so-called magnitude could occur um, with, you know, to to the total surprise. It just didn't happen that way. Total surprise. No. And so I think an article like this is the first detailed one from the, you know, Gerald Salente used to call the New York Times the, uh, because I think they say themselves they're the uh, official paper of record or something like that. And he would call them the official toilet paper of record. But, you know, it's got to be in the New York Times. Then everybody else can do a follow-up and say, oh, well, there was all of this, you know, in other words, it was it was planned, it was long planned, but Israel didn't take it seriously. There have to be a lot of, of different types of narratives out there to obfuscate what really happened and why it really happened. Antony Blinken is going to be at COP28. Or is there right now? John Podesta, for people who follow U.S. politics, you'll know that name. Samantha Power, she is the administrator of the U.S. Agency for International Development. Now, anybody who has never looked into USAID, please look into USAID, and I'll just give you a hint. Uh, Connected to Intelligence Agency. Samantha Power is the spouse, the wife, of Cass Sunstein that was the climate czar under Barack Obama, and that's what they called him, the climate czar. And he also was behind that book, Nudge. So they're always telling us gently, you see, before they get the stick out, how they want us to behave all tying into the Chinese social credit system, if you will. There are a few other names there that I think if you did some cross-referencing, you would find connections to Aspen Institute or CFR, etc., etc., trilateral. But a name that jumped out at me 
was Alice Albright. Alice Albright is the daughter of Madeline Albright, and Madeline Albright was another Secretary of State of the U.S. Now, here is this piece. Leslie Stahl, who was a journalist, asked Albright, who was at that time U.S. ambassador to the United Nations, and I just have to say, I'm pretty sure this is off the top of my head, but speaking of rotating musical chairs of appointments, I believe that Samantha Power, who is now U.S. aide, was at one time herself the ambassador to the U.N. So Leslie Stahl asked Albright, about the catastrophic effect that the U.S. sanctions imposed after Iraq's invasion of Kuwait had on the Iraqi population. And Leslie Stahl said, We have heard that a half a million Iraqi children have died. I mean, that is more children than died in Hiroshima, asked Stahl. And, you know, is the price worth it? I think that is a very hard choice, Albright answered, but the price, we think, the price is worth it. So I took that little snippet from an article he goes on to say, and this is a, an Iraqi gentleman who's writing the piece. He said, with this response, Albright showed that she sees innocent Iraqi children as nothing more than disposable fodder in a conflict between the U.S. administration and the Iraqi leadership. She demonstrated with no room left for any doubt that she had no humanity, that she cannot and shall never be described as a force for goodness, grace, and decency. I believe that goodness, grace, and decency was how President Joe Biden had described her upon her death. So these are secretaries of state. And right now we've got war in the Middle East, and we also have Climate change mitigation, COP28, going on in the Middle East. So it's a big party over there right now. I'm sure that the booze, even in a Muslim, the Muslim world, is just flowing. But I also wanted to mention before I stopped that one thing that doesn't get a lot of mention about Henry Kissinger's legacy is Memorandum 200. A lot of people even in the mainstream, will talk about Cambodia. But Memorandum 200, I will post a link to that declassified document, and you can read it yourselves. This is National Security Study Memorandum, NSSM 200, Implications of Worldwide Population Growth, for U.S. security and overseas interests, the Kissinger Report, December 10, 1974. In this, they study world demographic trends, population, world food supplies, minerals, fuels, economic development, population growth, etc. And they are talking about food as a weapon, embargoes, any number of things, but that often food needs to be withheld um, so that people will do what you want them to do. And there is a good piece, I think this goes all the way back to 1995, that came from Lyndon 
LaRouche's website, and I'll post a link for that too. There were several measures that Kissinger advocated to deal with this alleged threat, most prominently birth control and related population reduction programs. He also warned that population growth rates are likely to increase appreciably before they begin to decline, even if such measures were adopted. A second measure was curtailing food supplies to targeted states, in part to force compliance with birth control policies. There is also some established precedent for taking account of family planning performance in appraisal of assistance requirements by aid, U.S. Agency for International Development, and consultative groups. Since population growth is a major determinant of increases in food demand, allocation of scarce resources should take into account what steps a country is taking in population control as well as food production. Now, one thing that is interesting to me here is that the that this memorandum 200 didn't just stop. It wasn't just like, oh, here are some ideas that we're going to present to Henry Kissinger because he wanted us to, this, this directive. Um, that we're completing under this this uh, directive that we're completing under him, under his orders, or actually it said the orders of President Nixon. But these are policy, there were policies that came out of Memorandum 200 that are in effect today. And I, you know, for those of you who really want to do your homework and get into it, I will supply a few links so that you can look at it. But here's just a little bit from Wiki, because again, you know, we all know about Wiki, but it can sometimes steer you in the right direction quickly. The policies adopted from NSSM 200, and there was another directive, developed even further in 1976 after the National Security Council advocated for the use of withholding food through food power and using military force to prevent population growth with a memorandum reading. In some cases, strong direction has involved incentives such as payment to acceptors for sterilization or disincentives such as giving low priorities in the allocation of housing or schooling to those with larger families. Just think about, you know, social credit system. Such direction is the sine qua non of an effective program. This resulted in proposing to foreign nations the creation of money for sterilization, housing for sterilization, or schooling for sterilization projects. The Economic Warfare School said that the memorandum resulted with the United States using population control policies as a weapon of economic warfare against Nigeria by utilizing social blackmail to force sterilizations and utilizing food power as a means of mitigating population growth. Skipping over a little bit, it said, according to the Subcommittee of Inquiry of Voluntary Surgical Contraception of the Congress of the Republic of Peru in June 2002, 
NSSM200 was the global strategy defined for the last quarter of the last century by the United States government in order to obtain a decrease in the birth rate and was responsible for the involvement of the United States agencies for international development, USAID, in forced sterilizations in Peru. Now, let, let me just go back really quickly here to Madeleine Albright's daughter, Alice Albright. She's an American government official who has served as the CEO of the Millennium Challenge Corporation since 2022. Now, it's interesting because if you look at Alice Albright, you see all of her connections from her father, Joseph Albright, and all of her connections from her mother, Madeleine Albright. They are steep and interesting. And she has had many banking positions, Citicor, Bankers Trust Company, J.P. Morgan, Carlyle Group. Then she entered the nonprofit sector. For eight years, from 2001 to 2009, she was the chief financial and investment officer for Global Alliance for Vaccines and Immunization. That's Gavi. That's Bill and Melinda Gates. Where she worked on enhancing immunization services in the poorest countries. Etc. Etc. Now, what is Millennium Challenge Corporation, where she has been for a year? And remember, she's in Dubai right now at COP28. Millennium Challenge Corporation is a bilateral United States foreign aid agency established by the U.S. Congress in 2004. It is an independent agency separate from the State Department and U.S. aid. Now, you can read up on this yourselves, but what is interesting, George W. Bush wanted a program similar to USAID, but he thought that there were conflicting goals there, so he wanted something that could be standalone and have its own set of goals where there wouldn't be conflicts of interest. So the way this works, they have... they. This agency, Millennium Challenge Corporation, studies what needs to happen in a country. Civil liberties, uh, political rights, freedom of information, rule of law, control of corruption, immunization rate, public expenditure on health, girls' primary education, girls' secondary education. You notice how they're never concerned about boys' education and boys' secondary education. Um, child health, trade policy, gender and economy, gender and the economy. So I don't know if you recall when Hillary Clinton was Secretary of State, she was traveling all over the world when she wasn't having you know people killed and then cackling over it. She was traveling around the world telling countries, oh, we'd love to help you, we will help you, we want to send you aid, etc., etc. But you're just not LGBTQ friendly, so you need to get with that program, and then the money flows. That's what Alice Albright is up to. So just in closing, 
because I've talked too long once again. It's a, it's about time. It's time and where we are in the agenda. And I didn't want to spend too much time celebrating the passing of Henry Kissinger because when I look at these people, I see legion. It's, it's a uniform evil mindset that quite rightly should be cast into pigs so that they could run over a cliff and drown in the sea. So again, I encourage you, as Alan always did, to have the big picture, the bird's eye view of what is going on and to see this ancient man who died is one of many. They just keep cranking them out. So thank you again for your support. For those of you who are subscribing, I appreciate that. It's very necessary. I've been hit very hard (laughs) the last couple of months, and I want to keep going, and I will. I will. And I thank you for your support. And here is Alan. Hi, folks. I'm Alan Watt, and this is Cutting Through the Matrix on the 7th of July, 2019. Last week I talked about the, the dangers of just jumping into something that's offered to you as society. Because we tend not to analyze things. In fact, we're encouraged not to analyze things at all by those who design the systems that we're supposed to live in and go along with without question. It's an old art, but now it's perfected with incredible scientific studies on our behavior. We're all given the same data pretty well constantly across the whole planet now, global system. And I've gone through the talks about, about the behaviorists who, uh, there's many layers of them working at us all the time, sometimes in real time on the internet, other times it's computers that kick in and nudge you off to different areas. But if you're into certain areas that are really becoming taboo, and there's a lot of free thought actually becoming taboo, and there'll be more and more in the future as they rein in the right to, to even not just express anything, but think certain things too. And you'll find that you get the actual nudge units. And they do have nudge units. I've given talks on them and put the links up to who they are, etc. And uh, they do literally will come and they'll get in touch with you after trying to nudge you off into other areas of study or whatever it happens to be or conversation. Because we're in the, this, this system that's often decried as, as being similar to the Chinese social credit system. You've been in it for, for years, folks. What's happening today was designed before they gave you the Internet. I hope you understand that. I, I'm constantly astonished at the people who you could educate and educate and educate with evidence of how we're guided step by step into every every year actually and every new thing that comes along we're guided into it and how to accept things what our opinion should be and so on and, and given all the evidence but they go straight back in 
to thinking we're still stumbling down through time somehow. Because it's just too huge for them to imagine that billions of people across the world can be guided by the same people at the same time along the same path. Nothing is easier when you understand how to do it and you have the means to do it and the authority to do it. There were books churned out, lots of books on the global society and the, the, the coming socialist order, etc. of the world. And before that you had the Fabian Society going way back to its foundation talking about bringing in uh, the socially controlled society, meaning scientifically controlled society. You've had all the characters that came out in the front of some of the organizations because they were front people for them, like Lord Bertrand Russell. And you could read his stuff as a child and, and actually be carried off with it. It seemed very practical and often very illogical the way that you talked about things. Do, do you really want repetitive war, etc.? And here's how you can avoid it. But his solutions to it all is for, again, the same controlled society by using the sciences of control, mind control, and programming of children in a perfect scientific way. And again, right through their childhood and right through their adulthood as well. Well, you're in that. That's called lifelong education, they call it. I gave talks on this when, when we were given the Internet years ago and before I got to where it is today, where in the 1930s and 40s, they had people coming out for world socialism. One of them was a bishop in, in London. They called him the Red Bishop. He was quite open about the need for conformity across the world and how to shape the people's minds and how it would have to start again, as, as always, with, with the children and continue, he said, right through your, their lives. So that's, and at the time, people would scratch their heads and think, well, I'm not going to go to night school for my whole life. And, and, and long. You don't have, no, he was talking about entertainment. And the, the radio in his day had taken a, a chunk of people's time with very enticing plays and, and serials where folk could, and don't forget where the word serial comes from, from series, right? <laughs> and they would tune in to find out what happens at the cliffhanger from the day before, half-hour shows and things like that. And people would, would rush home to try and get them. Women who, in those days, in the 1930s and 40s, would all tune in to the radio or meet with friends' houses and listen to the radio to hear what happens. So you've got behavior modification as to what you're doing that day, you see. And then you have the added influence of the messaging implanted in the story, the social messaging. So it's, it's never stopped, but that was what he meant by it. And today, with, with television, that, that was incredible. What an amazing tool that was for the controllers. Eh? And Adam Curtis did some good documentaries on that alone, on how it was used. But you, you'd really are, are today with the Internet and all the rest of it, and with worldwide, worldwide systems with supercomputers and algorithms, managing all of us and guiding all of us along where it wants you to go, you see, as opposed to where you wanted to go and so on. It's getting much easier to control everybody. And you get the same flow of information, which is a, is a dearth of information right now.
That's why tonight I'm not going to give you much news at all, because news, as I said, we've turned the new chapter that the elites wanted for a long time. They don't want you knowing what's coming up in bills and laws and government, because you used to protest against them and maybe change the outcome. So what they did is train society to leave it to the experts, just play yourselves and, and use your free time for entertainment and be programmed at the same time. And then governments just, just put handouts that are dispersed through different uh, media. And, and that's how you get the, the information of any laws that are passed, etc. So you see how they've, they've managed, managed to squeeze you out of participating in what's called democracy. And I know it's a con democracy, but they manage to put people, squeeze you out of it, even, even the right to really know what's going on. And eventually it'll be a crime if you demand to know what's going on. I really mean that because the system, even the Club of Rome has said democracy would never work. It didn't and hasn't and would never work. It's used as a tool, you see to get everybody else to go along with, with uh, policies, thinking that you do have a say in things for change. That's the purpose of it. But in reality, as you've probably all seen, uh, we're living in a very dictatorial system as an example. And so this will continue from last week's talk, perhaps. But as an example, I was thinking of, of George C. Scott. He was a good actor, a good actor, uh, and a good character actor. But uh, And, of course, he was in some uh, just bubblegum movies, too, down through the years, like anybody would do for just for the money. But he he was in one about Hindenburg. Again, speculative idea of what, would, what, what may have caused this, the big uh, uh, Hindenburg, Hindenburg bomber. Uh, Hindenburg, of course, blew up uh, coming back, uh, um, coming from Germany to New York uh, as it was landing. So what caused it, you see? And of course, this was the 1930s when Adolf Hitler was in power. And there's a little bit in the movie, I remember, where, where they had passports being asked for and, and questions being asked to passengers as leaving Germany going to New York. And it's portrayed, again, as the usual, there's nothing in the worst world worse than the Nazi system. As though they never had that kind of thing in previous, uh, and, and parallel systems at that time. Of course they did, because a lot of what Hitler brought into being, and it's a socialist system, was taken from the communist system. You know, the, you know, Soviet socialist republics. It was adapted into it, into, into Germany, of course. And the Soviets were far more brutal than the Nazis even were in the 1930s. Because the Soviets had already slaughtered by the Bolsheviks, they slaughtered the entire intelligentsia of the country. The top leaders of it that uh, earlier on had boasted about how they wiped out a whole class. Then they replaced it with, with their own, you see. It's amazing how one thing is bad, but a bit of similar slaughter is somehow uh, not worth mentioning. And it's not to hold grudges, but I'm saying, here's a story. In it. So here's the, here's the Nazis asking for passports and why are you going to New York and all this. And I, and I thought, this is portrayed, I think it was done in the 1970s, the movie. And yet it's nothing to what we're, we've taken calmly and, and it's routine today across the whole Western world going on an aircraft with a massive, bigger system called Homeland Security in the States and barrages of metal detectors and all the rest. Isn't someone just asking why you're going to visit so-and-so? 
It's way beyond that. But that's portrayed back then as bad, you see. How we adapt into systems. It's amazing to me how we adapt into systems which can parallel something and, and surpass something that was, that was shown as being diabolical at the time. You see how it's dangerous, it's so dangerous to forget. And, and I've given talks on how we're trained to forget all, all these little strides that you make. Because under the guise of keeping you safe, they always strip you, always down through history, off your rights. And the first one to go is the right of privacy. You're in a dream today, a dream of tyrants uh, that's our nightmare. And we take it so calmly as being not as for our own good, you see. History, I've said before, is a horror show. Down through history, down through many, many, a horror show. Terrifying the public with scary stories is an old technique. And then they come out and once they've convinced you the world's going to end, then they tell you what you must do to stop it. And you obediently comply with their demands. Very old, old trick. Just like the ancient priests, ancient priests uh, would do his mumbo-jumbo for uh, good crops and so on. And to ensure that the sun would rise the next day. The sun priests, etc. And they would t- terrify the public um, and say, you know, after a bad crop, well, that's because you didn't give us enough uh, payoffs, basically, enough awards and rewards, and or enough of your labor, or your or your diamonds, rubies, or whatever it happened to be, and your gold or silver. And that's how uh, many uh, ancient priesthoods survived across the world. Latin America had it. You have it, of course, in, in different parts across the Middle East, and so on. A very, very old technique of terrifying the people. And, of course, as they had a, a life of leisure, these priests, then they could study and collect information, which becomes education for them, themselves. And that's why it was passed on very secretively amongst themselves, information on the study of the stars and and how stars moved and, and the positions of them and so on. And also uh, the, the planets as well. Positions of planets. And then they could bring in omens, you see, and, and portents and terrify the public again by knowing when you get eclipses through many, many centuries of study. And that was, that was literally magic to the peasantry, the literate peasantry across the planet in the ancient world where the high priests would do amazing dances and so on and terrify them with their, with their curses and oaths. And sure enough, here's a trial. It's like a trial, you know, before you, you throw your money in to them. This is what's, what could happen if you don't. You keep giving us money to make sure the sun keeps up and comes up. And it goes all dark for a while. Oh, my God, and what a power, right, over illiterate people. And you understand that the fights people had over such a long period of time to get individual rights, because you were always treated as a people. That was it, the people. You're the people. You're not so-and-so, you're the people. And those in power have always tried to keep it the same way. Uh, Individualism is is the worst enemy of totalitarian systems.
they will not tolerate it. And they can't tolerate it. Matsu Tung said the same thing when he was asked about the things that he feared. And he thought about it and he says he didn't fear weapons or guns or anything. He said, I, I, I fear someone who's got a, a big idea. The same term that the Bush, George Bush, the two Bushes actually, the father and the son, both used in their speeches on the, a new world order. A big idea, they called it. Because in the circles, you see, who rule the world, in the club, you might say, it doesn't matter what party that you pretend to belong to, they're on the same club, and they've gone through the same rituals, etc. But the big idea, of course, is someone who comes along and 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 give, it comes up tonight. A religion, for instance, terrifies them. It, it terrifies them because, believe it or not, religion will motivate people much quicker. Uh, faster, uniformly, so they'll cooperate than anything else. Starvation won't do it the same way either. But for cooperating with each other uh, along a belief system, they'll do it. And it terrifies them. And so the first thing they have to do is, is destroy, destroy, uh, the, 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 the real workable religions, the ones that worked and gave rights to the people. And when I get back to the ancient religions that did the sun worship and so on, that's different altogether. These are the same characters that had sacrifices and so on. And the Christian world, it gave for the first time individual rights to people. Individual rights. And that's, that took a long time to ferment properly and come down through time. And you look at the end, into the 1800s, 1900s in, in Europe and in Britain especially, the changes that, that, that eventually came to be. And it took a long time to do so. And it's, it was never made perfect or not. But look at the changes they made uh, for the rights of people. That all came from Christian societies. Including the abolition of slavery and things like that. It all came from the sea. So always for, don't forget the things that you're destroying now really were the end of an era. They came from the end of an era of Christian thought and conscience because the thought gives you conscience. Being a Christian gives you conscience. It doesn't justify the, the horrible societies that ruled over people, no doubt about it. And use people just like cannon fodder for their wars and so on. Doesn't excuse it at all. But we've got to remember that basic, basic human rights all came from the same people. And now you're going backwards. Under the guise of conformity again for the planet. And keeping you all safe. And you have less rights than you did 20, 30 years ago. And it was done without your permission. It was all done with governments just, just passing laws amongst themselves at the top, uniformly, which were all drafted up before 9-11 even happened, apparently. You know, it came, came, that all came out too. And now you have uh, professionals uh, running our systems. The professionals have nothing to do with, with, they have doctrines, except nothing to do with democracy. Because as I said before, even the Club of Rome, the big think tank for the, for the big management of the planet and sustainable growth and etc. These, these characters are the ones who don't believe in democracy, say it doesn't work. The same thing, by the way, that 
you'll find that some of the, the, those who were put on trial at Nuremberg after World War II, if you ever go through, uh, it's painstaking, of course, like most things are, they painstakingly go through things, but you find that they kept going on and on and on, trying to get people to confess to their, to their ills and their evils in the Nazi party, the upper echelons of the Nazi party. And it was Goring, who had been the, the air chief, you know, uh, he, they kept it on and on about him, and he, he was definitely a bit of psychopathic, uh, uh, almost an actor type, hysterical type personality. He loved to, he loved the show business type side of things as a, as a, as a leader. But he did say that the reason that Germany, in the middle of a mass depression, where nothing was working, and Hyperinflation and all the rest. He said, he said the reason that they brought in the Nazi party and then did away with, with the, the basic democratic rights for, he says because democracy could not work at that time. You see? And basically we were told the same thing after 9-11. They still use the term democracy because you're still allowed to vote for leaders. Whether it's all real or not, it doesn't make any difference. I don't believe it's, it's all real. And um, I think it's very much like the, the Politburo of the Soviet system, because the joke was true. It was a true joke, but you get four folk to vote for for the Politburo, a Politburo member A, B, C, or D, all from the same one-party system. If you look at the systems today, you're really looking at the same global. When they all have the same things in mind, globalization for, for and sustainable development with Carbon taxes at the top, sustainable society, meaning, meaning population control big time, food control big time, wages control big time, all these things, energy controls big time. It's the same kind of system, folks. I don't care if you use democracy or not. When, when you, they don't have really a, a diverse goal between parties, then they're all really the same, exactly what Carl Quigley said. In his own book, Tragic and Hope, that eventually the parties would all be spouting the same thing at election time to get in. As I say, we've never had... I can remember giving the talks before 9-11 happened. And then the, the week that, and the nights and the weeks that 9-11 happened. And I knew there was a massive agenda going to be unrolled very quickly. And I said, the, the, the hardest thing you'll have from now on to do the hardest fight you'll have is to hold on to your sanity. Because everything, literally, that was, has to be destroyed to bring in the new. Everything. Because the 21st century is a century of change. And transition, as they call it. It's all change. And this, this was, again, getting back to last week's talk. I was thinking about it. It's, um, it we were warned about it from so many different people. In the know, many of them were actually in the know and in the planning system of what was to come, like the family of the Huxleys. Julian Huxley was adamant in the need to depopulate all the wrong peoples, meaning working classes too, to be superfluous. Again, there was all a specialist class that was advising everybody, and you had the time and motions people, they called it too, for efficiency. 
And then you had, oh, the time will come when there's overproduction in this economic system and therefore we'll have to have less folk looking for jobs, etc. So you depopulate a controlled, scientifically organized society. All discussed and they all signed on to it, including Julian Huxley, of course, a big avant-garde part of it. And they're all members of the aristocracy. Quite amazing, including Bertrand Russell. And then they came out, and, and they say, you know, all the working classes are falling. It's all like, yeah, he speaks for me, it makes a lot of sense, you know. Because all they have to do for the working classes is to offer them a few goodies here and there. They always do. Listen to, to the parties today, they're all sound the same. Vote for me, we'll give you free this, free that, free healthcare, free education, free food even, you know what I mean? Everything's going to be free in this, in this paradise. And it's always astonished me how, how simplistic it is and how people fall for it. But then I, it, it's, it's, I'm a bit different. I don't even have one of these convenience cards for, for a, any particular store. Everybody's, everybody lives on these days, apparently. If they get a little, little percentage off or they get air miles points or something. They call them mouse traps in the, in, in the companies uh, that market, uh, uh, come up with ideas for marketing these things. And everyone's thinking they're getting a, a few deals here and there, and they give all their data away. They're watched like you wouldn't believe, uh, shared with governments and, and, you know, and other departments, and they know everything you're eating. And I've already had dis- discussions, and I gave talks many years on this, where they, they, they would have come out with different departments of health and, and saying, you know, we're, we're not you're eating too much of this or that or whatever it is, you see. And eventually, it's going to be black marks. This is, this is the same system as China. Don't you get it? We were doing it long before China put all that in. And they didn't have to force anybody here either. They just said, oh, you know, if you take these cards and then we can watch everything you're eating and so on, you'll get little discounts and little Latin. And away they go. It's like scratching one. Away they go. As I said before, what tyrant in history ever thought of just getting them to get down on their hands and, and knees and bow to you and do anything you want them to do and, and give their will to you? If you just give them uh, these free offers... No tyrant ever thought of that before. Never dawned on them. They thought that they beat it into you and conquer you. Well, you're conquered without it, you see. It's just astonishing. And therefore, when you're going to be bad, you've had a bad thought, or you've looked at something on the net that piqued your interest, you didn't know something, and you may go looking for more information, and it's a naughty thing to look at, and you're not supposed to, it's on the X, you know, you don't look at that thing. Because you, your masters don't want you knowing that, whatever topic it is, or even think it doesn't mean it's true or not. It's a, see, you're not allowed to have your opinion on anything. That's the point of a uniform opinion in society on every topic. You're all going to be like clones of each other. That's as close as I've got it at the moment without total genetic engineering of, of a generation. But, as I say, people forget so, so quickly where it all comes from. Back, again, back in the 30s, you, you had uh, Aldous Huxley, who at least came out and warned people. 
about what was going to come if they didn't stay awake and take an interest in the powers that ruled over them. That's why he did Brave New World. It was put out as a warning. It wasn't just to get big money and get his name in the lights, etc. He was an oddball in the family. And he, th- he had his own problems, which made him think a bit deeper. And he didn't really have a, an interest in controlling people. Whereas his family had always been involved in classifying different types of people and intellects and all the rest of it. And to intermarried even in some areas and with the Darwin family and, and so on. And social engineering, etc. But he himself saw what was coming because he was in on meetings. He listened to the people talking to in his own family. They were in other meetings. Julian Huxley was up to his eyes and plans to control society, Planned Parenthood and all the rest of it. And, and UNESCO. Anything that made uniform, uniform, uniform systems throughout the world, which they could control. So Aldous Huxley did warn people through Brave New World. And perhaps at the time, it's always the same actually. Those who are out of the loop, living their own mundane life, and it's, you know, uh, you couldn't imagine it. It seemed too science fiction, way off in some distant uh, never-never land type of thing to, to, to take effect on their minds until, you know, until many years later. And yet it was already being discussed how to implement it when he wrote the book. It's all eugenics, remember. A eugenic system where people were literally bred and designed to be whatever the work they were designed to do. It solved the problem for Marx's redistribution of labor, different categories of labor. And so you would only create them genetically. And they would take all the, the, the they make sure they, they took their, their medications and so on. They, they didn't, they didn't uh, get pregnant. But they, they, they could procreate all the time and, and take so many, as many partners. There was no taboos whatsoever at all about sex, you see. And this wonderful city that, that they had built in the brave new world. And they could, Acquire any goods that they wanted, materialistic goods that they wanted, but no one was poor. But it was like a, a world of fun and play, and you, during the day you had your job assigned to you, and you were designed literally. The, the, the genes that, that they claimed, if it any unhappy genes, had been removed from the, the sperm or the ovum, and you were guaranteed to be like like the uniform generation of the you that was before you in whatever classification it happened to be. It's interesting too that Brave New World, the author of it, uh, taught George Orwell briefly for a while. And then Orwell came out with his book, 1984. So they had a, a comparison of the two books, but it wasn't just a comparison. It was of things which were definitely going to come. And in, and in George Orwell's day, it had come to an extent with, with the communism, uh, with the boot stamping on the face, human face forever. And then had gone through the, 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 the same system in a, in a German fashion through the Nazi party. Both big experiments, very similar, in social, or socialism, 
scientific socialism, as they call it. But he also knew that they, they did experiments which would go further than that. At the same time, we should remember, we should remember too, and the reason we're into this tonight as well is because, as I say, this new chapter we're in, you're not getting any real news, if you noticed. You really aren't, are you? You're being kept out of the loop because they've weaned you off of your right to know things. Quite amazing, isn't it? So you get declarations from government after laws and things have passed, but you won't be uh, really aware of it. And maybe not even concerned, because there's so much entertainment out there to, to follow, or what the stars are doing, or who's sleeping with whom. And the star studied uh, literati, as they call it. So anyway, in 1948s, Orwell's book came out, and uh, it was called 1984, The Reversal of 48. He had a title which was changed to The Last Man, basically. He wanted to call it The Last Man, but his publisher didn't like that, and and it was self-explanatory in it, what happens to Winston in, in, uh, in the book 1984, what he meant by The Last Man and the comments of O'Brien, who was assigned to torture him, about him being, if you were the last man, you know. And he's some look at his face in the mirror after his teeth have all fallen out and all the rest of it. He's been shocked to death with terrible electric shocks and so on. The whole point was to destroy, completely destroy, your individuality. The individuality that separates you from the state, whatever, whatever the state happens to be called or the system is called, you and the state. Until you couldn't see yourself as, as apart from the state. In fact, eventually you'd burst into tears and be horrified if you thought this, you were barred from the state. If you thought that you had, had to be the state's thoughts and not your own one think was a crime, and things like that. Uh, so you, 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 it's just fascinating to, to see what was to come to. But here you are, here you have 1933, and who taught a man who came out with 1948, and you also had Bertrand Russell churning his books out in the 40s too about the coming uh, scientific socialistic system, right through into the 1950s and 60s. And he worked with all the groups, Frankfurt School, Macy Group, all the big ones who were to set up a new culture for the planet post-World War II. This is, that's Bertrand Russell, for those who don't know that. And then you had a 1948, uh, it was published like, in English in, in 1949, a, a book too, by a, a medieval, a professor in medieval studies uh, called Etienne Gilson. And it was the terrors of the year 2000. And it was something that I heard read in school when I was a child, a teacher. And it conjured up images in the mind of, of a horrible change that would, would definitely come around the year 2000. It's interesting too to me now because they had big debates when you when you had the, had the year two thousand. If that was when it would change, and they even had all the usual scary stuff out, and and would time stop your Y two K, all this kind of st- all nonsense stuff, the same kind of stuff in a different form of the first millennium, when comets would 
portend ill things on earth and plagues and so on, see. But they really went to town at the top with all this coming year 2000 and, and prophecies. And you had the Mayan calendar and prophecies. They re, did that again later when it didn't work out in 2010 or 12 and it didn't work then either. So, but the fact is it's always used. But what you do get out of it is the big plan. The big plan was definitely planned for what was to happen from then on, from 2000 onwards. You had, as I say, intimated from, from the speeches by the Bushes, the two Bushes, the, a new world order coming into view, a big idea. Hmm? And again, I even read these articles on there, and I said, you know, what do you think they mean by this? Uh, it's, it's like an occult language they were using, the terminology, and it was. It certainly was. Absolutely it was. Because everybody else is, is scratching their heads, saying, what, what do they mean by this? And, you know, a big idea coming into view, what kind of order, you know. And, and what they were telling you then, too, it was all shaped and done, and you had no input in it at all. That was awfully important as well. No one had been asked about your, do you mind, we've got a whole, a whole new system and way of living lined up for you. Uh, do you mind? That, of course, anything that matters, you, you will not get a hint at of, of, of pen and paper for a vote. Never mind the internet <laughs> chronology uh, and doing your internet votes and so on. But it's definitely planned. And the big boys at the top knew what it meant and and you had these different smiling people at the top of the media too, little smiles here and there of knowing smiles as they call it too. And then they even had the big debates. What does it really mean that the top, the top uh, scientists came out? Well, actually the year 2000, you know, that actually starts in 2001. Eh? And so bingo, in 2001 you have 9-11, the complete unrolling of a whole system. And you think, well, we just, okay, okay, we'll, we'll have to give up rights and feel free to be safe and all that. But did you ever think that everything had to be changed? Everything that was had to be turned upside down? Because that was in Etienne Gilson's book. The Terrors of the Year 2000. Everything that was. Like, last night I touched on different things too that got me into it, to thinking back on the track of that because last week uh, I mentioned about Nietzsche, for instance, and how people swallow this stuff up from philosophers. And, and they don't even... See, philosophers were given almost a godlike status by the atheists in later, later years. It, it was the Muslim countries that saved most of the philosophers of ancient Greece. At least, at least their writings for the West now to use. But you understand that, that you got a false impression of even Greece, because Greece, they weren't all walking around wearing miniskirts, these guys and togas, and, and prattling on about the, how, how bright and clever they were. Again, school comes from the word schola, which is leisure. It takes a leisure class, just like an ancient priesthood, even pre-Christian, for the sun gods and so on. To, to, to study stars and all the rest of it, to even impress the punters who, who worship them. So you need, you need free time and, and nothing else to do. And, you're, and the basic uh, scavenging for food or growing it has to be supplied for you and done for you. Well, that's how Greece was too for the wealthy. 
even amongst themselves, they bickered and they liked a good argument about things, as opposed to having an absolute doctrine on it. But you definitely had the beginnings of people who wanted doctrines. And really, it was the early church that gave some credence to some parts of the logical ideas of logic from Greece and philosophy and kept that going as well. But didn't elevate the philosophers up to a status higher than the gods. So many things are are misconceptions that we have today. But getting back to, to Gilson, he talks about the trepidation of things to come. And and see Nietzsche last week is in Bob Nietzsche. They got me onto this topic again. When he literally uh, came out and declared, you see, that, that, that now man was God. If there's no God, then what am I? Then I am God. The same, the same phrase actually is, is the, the very popular mantra of the New Agers. It's called New Agers today. Who literally think they can go through different rituals and, and become a God. And I remember the old documentary by Shirley MacLaine, who chats about it, and and then you see her on the beach as the helicopter goes higher and higher, and she's she's spinning around saying, "I am God, I am God." I'm tell little squeaky voice, "I am God." Yeah. And that that again is the end result of throwing order out of the window. The new age, as it developed was to gain power, unfortunately. And when man becomes God to gain power, then you have chaos, as they all put spells on each other, and they all hate each other and use or abuse each other. You're back to primitive chaos. They don't want, uh, basically, a religion which steadies them. And it steadies people by giving them rules, basic rules of rights and wrongs, not not just for an order, the order, whatever the order is they join, but literally an order for life and living itself. And most of the time they'll they'll miss all all of the, the points that are given out to them, often proving themselves. Because often improving yourself means you must give something up. And they don't have the patience to wait and see what happens by giving something up. And therefore the greatest things, or miracles as used to be called, will pass them by and they don't notice them, or they don't experience them, they don't have them. And so they go deeper and deeper into invocations and sacrifices and terrible things like that to try and get that power. Of course it's encouraged at the top, because anything you join that's a systematic system, you know, basically a formula, also is a pyramid with the controls at the top. Now, all religions can go the same way with controls at the top when they get infiltrated or corrupt themselves. And anything that's done by humankind always ends up corrupt anyway. It's, it's human nature. So there you go. So in the morning, you throw off the controls of human nature, which are self-imposed and voluntary, then the more corrupt the system becomes. That's how it is, really. 
That's, that's a very simplistic way of putting it, but uh, in a simplified way. But the fact is, that really is what present-day magic has brought people to. And they miss the point of it all. And they don't want something that's been so maligned and abused and misused, and misused too over time. And that's what happens. As Christianity. They don't want that. Where you're given the choices of doing the right thing or the wrong thing. And everybody knows what's right and wrong. You all do. I don't care who you are. You know it. So, the terror is the year 2000 where everything would happen. And everything that once was forbidden or warned against would become the norm. All, all rights were turned upside down. That's what Gilson was talking about. And he was taking it from, a, again, a, a, almost a canonical type of viewpoint from the Middle Ages onwards. And how humanity existed and saw itself from the different strata of society all the way down through time to the present, at that time, the present time he was living in. And as he mentioned Nietzsche as well, that... Again, if God is dead, then who is God? Then I, man is God. See? And all the things that were prohibited, and generally to keep a society safe, even workable with your neighbors and everyone else, could be turned upside down and thrown out the window. You see? When all, when all the, all the, 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 the laws and rules for survival, and rights and don't steal the basic commandments and so on, all those things were just tossed out the window. If God was dead, then what was impossible? Nothing became impossible. And that's the terror, you see. That's one of the biggest terrors. That now nothing is impossible. Killing millions of people now is possible. That, that goes in again to talks I've given on, on Kissinger and Brzezinski. Big top security advisors. And Brzezinski saying the same thing, and Kissinger as well, I think he went along with it and said the same thing himself. They both said the same things often because they both blocked the same organizations at the top. And at one time it was, it was, it was, it was, uh, almost uh, impossible to kill a million people and dispose of them and deal with it, the manpower logistics and all the rest of it. But, but, and then, but now, but now it was, it was easier, easier to kill millions of people, to kill them, than contain them and manage them. All these things tie into what I'm talking about, right? The terrors of the year 2000. From the actual book itself, it says, is in very truth, it's a beautiful, frightening, and penetrating prose poem, in a sense. And Gilson gives to us without scholarly references, even enigmatically, in what uh, concerns his medieval base histories of uh, Raoul Glaber and others too. That's all contained inside of it because it, it, he draws from previous authors and writers. And some of, some of the book actually came from one of his friends who died already. I think it was Fossil. If you read it, it's a good read to make you think. For those who like thinking, a lot of people now today uh, don't want to think. Anything makes them uncomfortable and being trained, of course, to turn away from anything which might make them a wee bit edgy or, or uncomfortable on something. They'll turn away from it because it's, it might be scary. 
about yourself. The last thing you want is, is maybe impose self-restrictions upon yourself, or, or maybe you should change this or that or whatever, you know. Or maybe you should be involved in certain things. Although uh, even people who, in a Christian sense, used to take it the world was evil. And technically, you can't, I can't really <laughs> disagree with them. Uh, the things off the things of the world that happen in it because of humanity itself can be definitely evil. Let's, let's admit that at least. Admit it. Then the animals have no choice on what they do to each other, predators and prey. And even, even, you, you'll find even chipmunks will fight each other over, over food in an area. They can't help their behavior. So here we are with our ability to think and choose. But inside humanity, you have the different types cropping up. And there's no doubt about it, the psychopathic group have always had a high position. If not governing the world and the countries of the world, then administrating it and planning it for those who own it. That's where I have come to conclude a long time ago. But anyway, as I say, Gilson goes through some of the histories from 1914 onwards throughout Europe, what happened, and the horrible wars that were, you know, millions of men threw themselves against other opponents, millions of men, and, and really what was the first mechanized war, and, and more perfected weaponry, and it was the first war where they admitted that everybody, all civilians were, were part of it. It was called total warfare. That became a, a, a dogma, a theory taught in, in uh, officer training in Britain initially, and then spread outside uh, Britain to other countries to total warfare that no one in a nation could be basically left alone. You're all a likely target because you're, you're making something or you're keeping, just like, the, just like we do today. You, those starved nations, I don't say you, I shouldn't say you, you don't starve nations, but those who rule you starve nations for their own agendas. Uh, to make people supposedly overthrow the, the, the guys who are ruling them. So starve you into, this is the hope they have, to starve you into, until you rebel and overthrow whoever's ruling over you. What a very humane way to do things, eh? Very civilized indeed. Very intellectual. This is the 21st century, and they're still doing it, eh? Ah, yeah, 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 yeah. So, uh, believe it, the same characters under sustainability are going to do the same with all of you, all of you, folks, in rationing, etc. I've already read some of the articles in the past where they've discussed this. And it is... I may come under different terminology, but it's all, it means the same thing. They're awfully good at, at hiding things with terminology to confuse you. But anyway, I'll definitely go through a little bit of this, things to come, as I say, with terrors of the year 2000. And that's where he traces it back to as well, as, as people like Nietzsche and the philosophers who, who trained you step by step into the acceptance of the utter horror of it all. A horror, I mean, 1914 should, should have shown them that you couldn't go on with a war right away. It was so obvious where 
machine guns, the heavy duty machine guns on, on bipods and tripods. They could fire 600 rounds a minute and belt fed uh, ammunition. Were placed along the trenches every sometimes 10, 15, 20 feet. So anything running towards them on a flat plane got halved in two. And they, they could not, you couldn't miss them. With armies, they weren't allowed even as they attacked to, to lie down and crawl towards an enemy to give themselves a lower profile. No. And they kept that upright through the whole war. Well, if that's civilization, you can keep it. And then they added gases to try to, you know, again, all the things getting back to, to, to the idea of Nietzsche, when all the, all the things that made things horrific to, to the sensibilities were now tossed out the window, all the rules, therefore anything was possible, nothing was prohibited. You understand? Nothing. Total war itself, except the fact they might have to annihilate whole, whole nations of people. That went right on and through World War Two. Whole nations of people. And it's still the policy of some countries at the moment. And all because, as I say, the, the Europeans first had tossed out the window for various, some of them good reasons as well, and, and terrible industrial revolutions and poverty and squalor galore of a society that became hardened because of the conditions and threw their religions out the window and, and uh, allowed their leaders to grab Nietzsche and all the other philosophers too, to go along with it. They tossed their religion out the window and it made everything possible. Nothing was unthinkable. And it's been on a roll ever since, folks. All that was right is now wrong. All that was wrong is now right. Gilson also talks about, in his book, remember 1949 it was published, that they called it Pasteurism at the time for Louis Pasteur, who, of course, there was a great discoverer of bacterium and studied off it too and pasteurization of milk, but they called it Pasteurism. Actually, it was better known at that time for biowarfare, but didn't have the term biowarfare. But he's talking about the banks of, of the arsenal stuff they were creating back then, and had been during World War Two, up until his book was published, of, of diseases and altering them to be more efficient killers of humanity. All that was unthinkable became thinkable. Some of the highest people on the planet are paid to go off in the mornings. They might have very, in fact, they all have very wealthy homes live a very wealthy lifestyle, all paid by our tax money, and they design ways of killing us and other peoples. And we call this civilization that we live in. Hmm. And Gilson also talked about how they could change genders of people by design. By designing babies, this is in the 40s. And how they wouldn't stop there, they make new types of humans to suit specific jobs. I've talked about this before. There's definitely branches of science and biology and uh, they talk about uh, bioengineering humans, uh, actually coupled with animals, if, if need be, different genes, 
to create specific types of humans that could even go under sea and become divers and welders and so without the need for a scuba gear, etc. And this is this is genuine stuff. I'm not, I'm not making it up. The X the X Files. That's all part of it. That's where it all came from. It's all this kind of stuff discussed a long time ago. Because there's nothing to stop anything from happening today, you understand? Because uh, the, the rules that kept people uh, from from experiencing the horror uh, was was not to even allow it to happen. That's been thrown out the window. And now you get the sense of the sense of it all coming in waves, you see, and you experience the horror, and it'll be done scientifically, and you'll be you can be persuaded into it, like Huxley said. You come to love your servitude, no matter how bad it is, and how demanding it. You'll love your servitude. You'll be convinced and nudged into it by, by the nudge behavior groups, behavior on insights teams, and so on. It's all here, folks. And the West goes sterile and doesn't even stop and ask why. And doesn't ask the, the obvious question is, how come it's not a crisis? Well, it's not a crisis because it's planned that way, obviously. Or it would be a crisis. Huh? If, if there's a crisis, you might all go extinct. Believe you me, the farmers who own us would want to find out what's causing it and they would stop it like any other farmer. Obviously. It's interesting too that because of the that they knew they create different kinds of designed humans. Going to go into the uh, impact of science on society, but Bertrand Russell tied in with it too. And you'll see what he talks about. It's all connected. Russell said on page fifty. I've read this before too. And it's good to repeat things to people because they forget so fast. He even mentions how repetition is so essential to condition you. Well, see, repetition on yourself is essential for you to free yourself as well. He said anyway, he says, 50, their philosopher laid it down, that education should aim at destroying free will. Right? This is the guy who worked with the Macy Group, who was designed to set up as a massive uh, international think tank to create a post-World War II culture which would be totally under control, including free sex and all the rest of it, then coming with abortion to, 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 to deal with the fallout of the free sex, etc., etc., and the destruction of the family unit, yada, yada, all that stuff. They plant, they work with it. They work with all what's called the, the radical groups, the socialist groups. They worked with the groups, the, the Frankfurt School, for instance. And the Macy Group were also given the authority to do so, to create a new culture, by Eisenhower was when he became president of the US so they weren't just doing a thing all on their own this is still to the same today the big groups of runners have authorization from the, the top some of them don't even know that but the guys who rule them and, and, and run them they do know this it's all been, it's been planned that way so 50 laid down education should aim at destroying free will See, you do free will by destroying the individual. So that after pupils have left school, they shall be incapable throughout their lives, the rest of their lives, of thinking or acting otherwise than as their schoolmasters would have wished. But in his day, this was an unattainable idea. What he regarded 
as the best system in existence produce color marks. In the future, such failures are not likely to occur where there is dictatorship. And that's the famous part, too, that I've mentioned many times and many folk have caught on to. Diet, he says, the food that you're, 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 that you build, you're given, right, is available for you. Injections. And, uh, yes, he went on to say that injunctions, laws and so on, will combine from a very early age to produce the sort of character and the sort of beliefs that the authorities consider desirable. And any serious criticism of the powers will become psychologically impossible. Think of all, you tell me your social credit system, and you're already seeing it too, you're naughty, naughty, no money for you this week, you see? Things like that. That's how it's done. Any serious criticism of the powers of it will become psychologically impossible. Even if all are miserable, all will believe themselves happy. Because the government will tell them that they are so. A totalitarian government with a scientific bent might do things that to us would seem horrifying, he says. Hmm? Again, getting back to Nietzsche, thinking about Nietzsche, nothing would become impossible, we see. If there's no God, then all the rules that you had, morality rules and so on, moral rules, are out the window. Hmm? That made a lot of people excited of what they could get do then, right? So, he goes on about the Nazis. He says, they were more scientific than the present rulers of Russia, when he wrote the book. And were more inclined towards the sort of atrocities that I have in mind, he says. They were said, I don't know that what, with what truth to use prisoners in concentration camps as material for all kinds of experiments, some involving death after much pain. If they had survived, they would probably have soon Take the scientific breeding. So the whole point of it is getting that in socialism. They'll eventually take the scientific breeding. Any nation which adopts this practice will, within a generation, secure great military advantages. The system, one may surmise, will be something like this, except possibly in the governing aristocracy. All but 5% of males and 30% of females will be sterilized. This is a guy who's exposing it under the guise of, you know, but he's actually advocating it. Because he worked with the couple of groups that gave us the present system, that gave you a lot of these things that are already happening. And that's, this also gave, gave um, ideas to a lot of authors to write books on it and get The Handmaid's Tale and things like that. All these things come out of, of characters like, like Russell who was at the head of massive organizations for social engineering. So anyway, it says all but 5% of males and 30% of females will be sterilized. The 30% of females will be expected to spend the years from 18 to 40 in reproduction in order to secure adequate cannon fodder. As a rule, artificial insemination will be preferred to the natural method. That's also where... George Orwell. I mean, it wasn't just all, it wasn't just one person saying this. This was knowledge amongst those in the know. And George Orwell knew too that in 1984 they would sort of do away in his idea with, with the family units eventually and, and even make it taboo to have just, just random sex, I think. You see? So what they eventually came up with is to promote sex. 
and then train the people on the way of Julian Huxley's idea. Promote sex, the fall will be mass pregnancies, uh, unwanted, and then the state will come in and either pay for women to have children at home, this without, without men involved, deceptive for impregnant, and, uh, or else abortions. That's how it all worked out. You never live through an era of a system. You never live through an era of a system uh, where you're really your own person with your own mind and your own, you're an independent thinker. Very, very few people today uh, are, actually. And you're given things to chase. And you do chase them. You're given leaders to follow and you'll, you'll follow them as well without even noticing when they've been maybe taken over or showing their true colours. And if you come out with a lot of factual evidence, they, they can be verified. They'll put out someone behind you with a lot more money, put out the same information, they'll grab your stuff, and they'll add crazy things to it, like the space aliens involved or whatever it happens to be. And then you're lumped in with the craziness of them. That's, that's counterintelligence, that's what it's called. Again, getting back to, getting back to not just, uh, Matsy Tong's idea, but, but uh, his greatest fear was a big idea that wasn't their own, you see. So if you come out with a big idea of who's running the world and so on, you rule, um, it won't be easy for you. It really won't be easy for you. And Russell said it, but Russell also said in his own book too, that if you came out with a lot of information, and you couldn't be won over if you had a good mind and you, and you could convey things to people naturally. And you can be won over and work for them and take all your scholarships and go to the right granite stone buildings to be taught and impressed and awed by all the statues of famous people before you. If you wouldn't go along with them, then they would have to basically eliminate you and they may annihilate you because you might use your, your, your mind and the knowledge of what they were doing to you all of the people, and, and inform the victims, the general public of what was going on. Then they'd have to eliminate you, you see. They're quite open about it. Quite open indeed. Anyway, I've been kind of rambling on here, but, but so that was just basically what came to my mind. Because as I say, I do have articles here of news, but I, they're, they're worthless as far as I'm concerned, because it's just, it's just, we don't get news more anymore. We, we get just handout statements from authorities of things that may be or are done or whatever, but really there's nothing which you can participate in and complain to government. They don't want you complaining, so you, you, you now you leave them alone to, to play themselves in government. And that's what a lot of them actually do these days. Do you realize that, and I gave it, remember giving the talks years ago, that the, the politicians literally were given big sums of money as, 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 as like grants by the government and they could take acting lessons on deportment and so on. And they already have their own speech writers. Everyone's written for them. But they even have their own PR departments for some of the politicians. If they're wealthy enough, they can have their own PR company to put out all the, 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 the fake stuff that they want you to believe. Right? Royal families have it, of course. And different branches are all family, even the couples have their own PR companies to keep their names in the paper. That's where you're seeing them everywhere now. And all the drama, like a soap opera, but who's not talking to you? That's all made up nonsense. 
because they are, they're also going by hits. They've got PR managers in the digital age, eh? There's hardly out there anymore that's real. Pretty tragic, isn't it? That this, this, this luminescent screen, eh? That, that's taken over your lives and runs it all has given you a completely fake reality. And now, of course, it's, it's simply diverting you off into other areas that you maybe don't even need to go or didn't want to go into when you're looking for genuine information. They actually say, and I've heard people in, in uh, universities in Canada, they have certain panels used to go on television years ago with these authorized professors at all, and you always knew who was the head honcho one amongst them. They actually announced there were certain topics that were just too sensitive for, for the public to be informed about. And that's what they said live on television. You're just too, you're just too wild and crazy, you see. You're, un, you're not intelligent enough to handle certain kinds of information. I'm not kidding you. Now, I know who it was, but I won't say it because I certainly will be persecuted for it. And, uh, that's how things really are these days. It's getting pretty nasty, isn't it? But anyway, just think about it too, from all different people who have helped to destroy that which was under the guise of philosophies, step by step, and then then substitute themselves and their philosophies. They all have, a, a again, a pyramid type of system. There's always a capstone at the top, folks. And when they're in unison across the world with a unified plan across the whole planet for every every people's then you can guarantee they're all working together on it. Of course they are. And they used to be more open about it, but then they clammed up a bit after 9-11. They got to still think, make you think you still have nations. Well, they have you pay for it all for the wars that still have to be fought. And then you'd be back to the old, you were all global before, in the 90s we're all, we're all global. <laughs> it was a common expression. Then suddenly you become nations again when you have to, when you have to uh, fight wars and then be back to being global. But, but the global aspect has never changed. And with technology, it's the same technology across the whole planet is getting used here. And China was to be the model state for the planet, according to the United Nations. They did television documentaries on it, using those very terms. And you weren't asked about that, were you? Of course you weren't. But you still see you're democratic, won't you? Anyway, for myself, from a, a blabbering night, I'm afraid, because, as I say, it's... Uh, there's nothing in the news to interest me, and most of the stories are so irrelevant in the passing of time, really, that they're hardly worth talking about. You can get plenty just to reinforce what I've said tonight, I suppose, because you see the fallout of it as things get crazier and crazier, when, as I say, all that was is to be destroyed to bring in the new and it means that everything is now the opposite opposite everything and opposite values opposite laws and even the rights and wrongs are, are completely reversed now until the opposite is often even complaining about what should be bad might be deemed uh, evil and uh, and illegal astonishing isn't it and all came supposedly 
when we hit 2000, 2001, the real start of the 20, 21st century. Interesting. Remember, you can, you can buy the books and discs at cuttingthroughmoodies.com. And remember too, you can send cash. You can use cashless systems and you can also send international postal money orders if you're outside Canada from the post office. Easy to do. Very small fee for that compared to some of the other ways of, of transmitting it. And people can still send their personal check as well. There's ways to do things because things will get worse and worse as, as, as we all get nudged and nudged and warned and cut off. And, and it's, it's just like sheepdogs. Sheepdogs, if you watch them on a, on a, working on a, on a group of sheep, a herd, can it literally single out one or two according to the whistles, you know, that language of whistles by the shepherds. They used to have these, these sheepdog demonstrations in Britain. And Wales, especially, was a really good ones in Wales. And they, they, they were so well trained. The, the two dogs could literally go into a pack, or a herd, as you used to say, of sheep, and, and separate the one or two that they wanted, or whatever it happened to be. Well, that's what happens to us now. They're separating you and just nudging you off away from the crowd and try to isolate you in a different pen from the rest of society. Right along the lines of Bertrand Russell from Ontario, Canada. I'm Alan Watt. And it's good night to me, your God, your God's go with you.